opportunity. I'm going to ask Davy if she would come, and she's going to read our text this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, she's reading out of the New Living Translation. Come on up, up here. Yeah, bring that with you. Just bring that with you. That's good. And I'll make sure that it's, is the light green? Let's just get, yeah, there you go. Thank you. We're reading today out of the second chapter of Mark, verses 1 to 17. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news quickly spread. The news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their fate, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of uh, religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? That is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to mm -hmm. forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked through the walked though the walked out though through the stunned onlooker. Sorry, English is my second language. <laughs> <laughs> I was just in Guyana, so there you, there you go. <laughs> I have an excuse. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth, Follow me and be my disciple. Jesus said to him, so Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law saw who um, were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Thank you so much, Davey. We're talking about the call of God that is on your life. We're in the book of Mark for a number of weeks with the words, come, follow me. Learning firsthand from the places that Jesus takes his disciples, from the things that he exposes, to, from, from the lessons that he teaches them. 
And, and, and from the moment that Jesus calls his disciples, he starts working on and challenging their mindsets, starts adjusting their values, starts transforming the way that they look at people and, and what they think about faith and the view they have about who God is and what he's like. And one of the first things he addresses in Mark's gospel is the level of commitment, what passion looks like. If you were to go through my wallet this morning, and no, you cannot, um, but if you were to go through my wallet this morning, you would find that there are cards that entitle me to certain rights and privileges that are held here. Uh, I have bank cards and identification and loyalty rewards cards and membership cards, cards that allow me to take books out from the city library, a card that entitles me to drive, two insurance cards, chapter says that I'm a valued customer and I really am. Um, Costco likes me as well, and I have 21 cards in all in my, in my wallet, and I, and I appreciate the rights that they supply or, and, and give me, the services that they give me, but, but, but I'm not passionate about any of them. I, I'm not willing to give my life for my scene card, not, not willing to give up any part of my living for air miles or to optimum. I'm not willing to pledge my allegiance to my Alberta health care provider or, or to the provincial driving license department. I am a member, but I'm not passionate enough to give them my heart, my soul, my strength. Jesus speaks about surrender. Jesus talks about sacrifice, about me as a follower picking up my cross, the instrument of death. And following him. About living with all of my heart, my soul, my mind for him. And there are reasons that lukewarm commitment doesn't work in the kingdom. First of all, a lukewarm commitment will allow other passions, other commitments to surface and to push Love and service to Jesus further and further down the agenda of our lives until Jesus is all but invisible in our life. Secondly, a, a divided heart, a divided loyalty will always end up creating conflict and eventually compromise. You, you, you can't serve two loves, two masters, two kingdoms at the same time. You'll either end up loving one and hating the other or vice versa. However, because of the nature of the kingdom, the, the way that it fights for the freedom, for the, the, for the lives of captives and prisoners, because it challenges the rights of, of darkness and evil powers, because it goes to battle over territory that is illegitimately held by Satan, there's an understanding that the fight is vicious and the enemy enraged and the warfare is brutal. And so Paul speaks to Timothy about the cost that's associated with serving Jesus. He says, I remember your genuine faith. For, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and the passion that your mother Eunice had. And, and I know the same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames, into, fan the passion that you have for the spiritual God gift God gave you. When I laid my hands on you, 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and sound mind or self-discipline. So never be ashamed, Paul says to Timothy, to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison right now, with the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. You can't be lukewarm and follow Jesus. Lukewarm doesn't cut it in following Jesus. And and Jesus stands in the book of Revelation, and he's evaluating seven churches in that book, churches that ironically, in the view of what's happened this week, are located in Turkey. And and to to the church in the city of Laodicea, he writes this, I know all the things that you do, that you're neither hot or cold, I I wish you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says to a a church, to a people who are called by his name, I can understand and I can appreciate people of passion. And and I can comprehend a a hard-hearted, cold rejection of the gospel and its claims. What I can't tolerate is lukewarm followers. He was talking to a city that had to bring its water quite a distance through an elaborate aqueduct system. And and while they were grateful for the life-giving gift of water that allowed them to sustain life in their city, there was a problem. In the summer months, the the water was transferred from afar to their city, and as it came down that narrow, fairly not deep area, it, it it was warmed by the sun, and by the time it arrived in the city, it was not hot enough for coffee or tea, but it was not cold enough to be refreshing. It was somewhere in between, and so they'd go thirsty, and they'd put it in their mouth, and because it was lukewarm, they'd spit it out. And Jesus says, if that's how you respond to lukewarm, I want you to know that's how I respond to lukewarm as well. When it comes to following Jesus, passionate followers is what he's looking for. No lukewarm follows, please. So Mark takes us to the town, back to the town of Capernaum. They have been there. It's where Simon Peter is from, and that's the headquarters that they've been there. They've gone to other towns, and now we're told that they've come back to Capernaum. And Jesus and his followers have have, uh, come into Simon's house. And and as he's there, he's opening up the word of God, and he's starting to teach. And and anybody who's interested comes. And and people who have heard that Jesus is back in the area, they, they, they start to drift towards Simon's house until the house is full and packed with people, uninvited people. And, and, and there are people hanging out at the door, and they, they keep coming, and finally there's a request. Can you open up the windows so that we can stand out here and hear what he's saying in the heart of the house? And, and Mark records that there is a man who is paralyzed. A man that's paralyzed, and he's brought to the house where Jesus is at the moment, and he can't move on his own, and he's being carried on a mat, which in that day was a poor man's bed. If you couldn't afford a bed, you had a mat. And if you're a person who's in need right now, I hope that you have friends that are so passionate 
and so convinced by who Jesus is and what Jesus can do that they fight to help you in your need reach Jesus. And and if you're not in need right now, I, I hope that you love Jesus so deeply that you are committed to getting a friend that you have that faces trouble and difficulty as close as you can get them to Jesus, as close to his heart, to his power as you can possibly get them. We're not given a lot of information that I would like to have. You know me, I like the story. I want all the details. How far did these four men carry this paralyzed man? How heavy was the man? Where had the four who carried the man heard or encountered Jesus before? What convinced them that he could help their friend? Why would they be so motivated, ignoring all the obstacles, all the difficulties to make sure that their friend is placed in front of Jesus? But, but let's, let's just test friendship here this morning. I, I'm just slightly under 180 pounds. And I'm going to lay on a blanket and I'm looking for four friends to carry me on the blanket to the Franklin LRT station this afternoon. How many, how many would, oh, there's one, two, three. Oh, I've got more, I've got a lot of friends. Okay, I didn't expect to see any hands. I'm, I'm grateful to go to such a great church. I, I want you to remember that before you volunteer, there are steps to get up over the street, and then there's those steep stairs to get me down, and I don't want to be banged around, and I don't want to be dropped. I'm a little picky, okay? I'm a little picky. The, these four friends are so highly motivated that when they arrive at the house and when they find that they can't get their, their friend anywhere close to Jesus because of the crowd, they're not deterred, they're not defeated, they're not discouraged. The houses in that day and region were flat-roofed houses. That that way, the upper floor, the the roof could be used for extra room, for storage, for gardening, used to catch something of an evening breeze. So there would have been an exterior stairway that took you to the roof. And the four men take their their friend, carry him up the stairs to the roof. And then they start to deconstruct the roof. Usually there'd be an insulating layer of grass planted in a clay soil mix that would keep the moisture from leaking through to the living quarters. There would be clay tiles that would give strength and stability to the structure. And then under that would be thin strips of of wood that crisscrossed the the ceiling that would hold the plaster that would be used on the finishing side up on the roof. And so these four men figured out where Jesus was standing in the building and they start to dig through the roof. It's Simon's house. We know that Simon can have a bit of a hair trigger when it comes to anger. Imagine what he's seeing, what he's thinking as he sees a hole starting to develop in his, in his roof. They, they, they dig and create a hole until it's big enough to lower their friend through the roof by rope right in front of Jesus. 
compassionate faith is never deterred by difficulty. It's never silenced by obstacles. It's never slowed down by a challenging impediment. People who know Jesus, know him intimately, know who he is, know what he's like, are convinced about his ability, will push, will fight, will struggle till they get to him. When you know that nothing is impossible, you will not allow anything to stop you until you've arrived at a satisfying conclusion to your dilemma. You never stop. It takes some courage. It takes some ingenuity to go to a stranger's house and to start digging up his roof. But they had at some point encountered Jesus, and that encounter had been so successful, so transformative, that they would not be happy until their friend was up and off the mat. Whatever it takes, we're going to make sure that we have breakthrough. Lukewarm followers are deterred way before that. They give up at the side of the crowd. Oh, it's lined up. Let's go home. The, 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 the inconvenience. But passionate followers will, throw, will go through anything, will go to any length to have breakthrough. The, the, the text says that Jesus sees the faith of the four friends. He sees it. They carried him. They brought him. They, they've lowered him. And he's impressed by their faith. He's he's confronted with faith, and we know from the word that Jesus responds not primarily to need, but always, always to faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And for, for you who are fighting impossible battles right now, I want to say, get into the word. Ask Holy Spirit to direct you to a promise, to a revelation that you need for what you're going through. Find it and memorize it and then pray it and believe it and live it and claim it and pronounce it over your situation. Don't give up. Call it out until it goes beyond your brain and it seeps into your heart. Call it out until it possesses your spirit and releases faith that says, no matter what, I will hold on to the promise of God until I have an answer, until he hears the cry of my heart and answers. That's what faith is. And Jesus always responds, always answers faith. And so Jesus is impressed by the faith of the friends and he speaks to the paralyzed man. He he turns to him and he says, my child, Mark is pretty quick with the words. He doesn't, he doesn't write a lot. He writes bare minimum, and, and, and it's an, a term of endearment, of value. You're not a stranger here. You're not an intruder. You're not an inconvenience. You're not a burden. You're my son. You're valued. You're understood. You're worthwhile. I'm willing to help you out. If, if you're here today, I want you to know that as his child, you're welcomed, you're valued, you have worth in this house. Doesn't matter what you're facing. In the Old Testament, there was a great deal of belief that sickness and death were tied into our sin nature. Je- Jesus understood that sickness was not always the result of a personal sin. But, but that since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, sickness had, had rights, had entrance points, and, and it didn't, that it didn't need to have, and, and, and that sickness generally is the result of sin. So Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Well, that sends off and sets off all sorts of alarms in the room. 
The, the religious folks are all riled up and angry. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. He's not God. He might be a teacher, and there's a possibility on the outside chance that he's a, a prophet, but he isn't God. In a heart that's not passionately, constantly fighting to discover who Jesus is and what he is like, such a heart can be deceived by what it thinks is true, what it thinks it understands. It never fails to surprise me how we, who are finite and limited in every way, think we have an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God figured out and pigeonholed into a box that allows us to see and understand Him. If that's your God, someone that you've figured out, then of you of all people need to be pitied. The one, the true God, is beyond, way beyond your ability to, to believe or to understand or to even comprehend. Jesus understands the problem that he has caused in the room. He, he knows what all the whispering is about. He, he not only reads the room, but he reads and understands hearts and minds. And, and he knows that he has been accused of blasphemy. That the room has been quickly and clearly divided into those who believe and those who are appalled by what he has just said. And, and it was part of the plan to, to challenge, to push against the, the religious norm, to, to reveal that religion was part of the problem. That, that, that rather than take people to God, it, it pulled people further away from God. So he says, I will prove to you that God has given me the Son of Man, a title that we're going to run into quite a bit in the book of Mark that I'd like you as you're re reading through Mark to underline it. We're going to spend some time with that a little later on. But th that the Son of Man is, is come with the authority and the ability to forgive sins. And I'm going to prove it to you right now, he says. He turns to the man who's been lowered through the roof and he says, Sir... I want you to do what I tell you to do. I want you to stand up, pick up your bed, and I want you to walk home. This is a man who has never walked. A man that has never had the use of his lower extremities. And now without physiotherapy, without rehabilitation to strengthen muscles that have never been used, he's to get up, carry the bed that he has always been carried, that has always carried him and go home. When God shows up, he's always more than enough. He's always more than expected. He's always more than asked for. He always goes beyond what we expect or anticipate. The, the man doesn't slowly attempt to roll off the mat and, and awkwardly push himself up to stand and then again try to bend over and pull up the mat. The word says he jumps up. He bends down with ease and he gets his mat and he struts out the door. Everyone in the room except for Jesus is stunned. 
Those who are religious, those who are lukewarm or cold toward Jesus are busy attempting to redefine, reorganize their their theology. Their their unbelief is fighting for dominance and so their, their minds are full of arguments and lies and ridiculous assessments in the hope of justifying their unbelief. He's still, I don't care what happened, he's still not the son of God. He can't forgive sins. I've, those who, are, who have hearts that are open, who are looking for the promised Messiah sent from God, their experience with the word stunned is faith-inducing. They're not looking for the why. They're rejoicing in the fact that what has been promised has finally arrived. If God will do it for a paralyzed man, then he will do it for my disease. He will do it for my crippling situation. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. I've said this in this series already, and I'll say it again today and throughout our study. You will find what you're looking for. The invitation is, seek for me with all your heart, and I will be found where you're standing. You'll find what you're looking for. Jesus knows that you're... What you're going through right now. He knows the obstacles that you face, the opposition that's lined up at your door and is planning not only to take you down, but to destroy you. I want you to know this. Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. Ephesians 2, or 3, verse 20. Lukewarm follows will never get there. Passionate seekers will. If you seek me with all your heart, I will be found of you. It's the promise. It's the guarantee. The next scene is an incredible picture of transformation. Jesus picks another unlikely candidate to have follow him. As unbelievable as it would have been to To put your teaching into the hands of untrained, uneducated fishermen, Jesus goes further and he calls out a tax collector to come and to follow him. This little town of Capernaum is is a customs post on the route that caravans used to go from Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea to export their goods to the nations. You're a foreigner and you're coming through my corridor, through my country, using my roads and my services. So you're going to pay a tax. You're going to pay a duty that will be used to do some upgrading on local roads, but will also enrich the tax collector, will fill the treasury in Rome with money that they did not deserve according to local thinkers and editorial commentators. Each tax collector was given a daily quota. You have to raise X number of dollars each and every day. And you have to submit those dollars to the Roman authorities. Anything else, anything more that you can squeeze out of your local customers is a personal profit. The better you are at squeezing, the richer you are personally. So so you can see why tax collectors were despised people in general population, why their national loyalty was questioned and their partnership with Rome made them public enemies of the regular man on the streets in Israel. 
But, but Jesus is out walking, and he's, he's walking away from the population center and going beside the lake shore, and, and he's going to sit down, and he's going to teach, and he sees Levi, whose father's name is Alphaeus, and thankfully he wasn't named Alphaeus II. He was named Levi. But you and I would know him better by his surname, Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. To Matthew, Jesus says, come, follow me, be my disciple. Let, let, let me change you and transform you into a passionate, committed follower of mine. Learn who I am. Pick up my ways and understand me why I do what I do. Let me put my stamp on you so that when people see you work and operate, they will say of you, he was instructed at the feet of Jesus. Come, follow me. Jesus has now stepped into a whole new controversy. You'll, you'll notice that he's not afraid to do that. Because the religious mindset has all the people separated into something of a, of a caste system. There are at the top the pure-blooded descendants of Abraham. And then there are those who are... Jewish, but they're not committed to the laws of Moses. And then there are foreigners and pagans, and eventually you keep going down until you get to the pond scum called tax collectors. People who would rob you blind and send some to Rome. The people that you wouldn't want to have darken the door of your home. Tax collectors were in the pond bottom of the caste system. And Jesus goes up to one of them and he says, Hey, you have value. Come follow me. And in return, Levi invites Jesus and his followers to come back to his house for dinner that evening. And he has a social circle as well, seeing that the Jewish people would have nothing to do with him, wouldn't talk to him unless they needed to. He has a friendship circle, the other tax collectors. And, and, and you go around when nobody else seems to think you fit, and you gather up other social misfits, and you gather them together, and you call them your friends. And so Mark records that Levi, Matthew, invited his many tax-collecting friends and other disreputable sinners. Mark, Mark highlights this by saying that these are not the first disreputable people to join themselves to Jesus. He, he reports that even at this early stage in ministry, there are many people of this kind, disreputable people who are following Jesus, and Jesus hasn't pushed them out. Jesus hasn't said, stand away or don't, don't identify. He's welcomed them in. That did not go well with the Pharisees, with the religious teachers. Anyone who did not observe, did not practice strictly the rules and the regulations of the religion were seen as, as sinners, as unworthy, as pagans. And, and the religious had to justify their behavior and their sacrifice. And the way they did this was God only loves those who, who watch how they walk and how they speak and, and what they eat and how they be, behave. And, and if you don't do these things, then God smiles. God's smile isn't on you. But if you do do them, you're his favorite. You're held close to his heart. If, if you have been to Israel... 
then you know something of the rules that go along with observing Judaism. If, if you are staying in a hotel on the Sabbath and you're on the 33rd floor of the hotel, you know that you stand in the lobby of the hotel and you wait till the elevator comes and then you stand in, but it's the Sabbath, so you can't work, you can't push the button that says 33. You stand and you wait for the door to close and then it opens on level two, level three, level four, level, all the way. It could take you a very long time to get to 33rd floor. But that's just one of thousands of rules. It is these men who struggle with Jesus going to the house of a tax collector. It's these people, these self-righteous people who struggle with him joining around the table of fellowship and eating, identifying with sinners. It's this freedom to eat with such as this translation says, scum that upsets the religious class. Jesus is in the middle of some of the most religiously bigoted people ever gathered, and he gives a clear, well-reasoned argument to his detractors. You're wondering why I'm here, and I want to explain it to you. He says, "You, you don't send a doctor to people who are not sick. You send a doctor to people who are struggling with health issues. I didn't come to help you folks that have it all together spiritually. After all, you've told me very clearly you don't need me. You have it all figured out. I was sent by the Father to those that think, not to those that think they have it all together, but to those that know they're estranged from God and they need help to get back to him. You think you're okay, so I'll just leave you alone. You leave me alone while I go to my sinner friends. It's a loaded, explosive statement. And Jesus doesn't avoid controversy when it comes to religious people. He he said what he meant and he meant what he said. You can't help people who think they have all the answers. So go to the ones who know that they're lost and help them get back to God. Yes, I am hanging out with sinners. It's who God sent me to. You're just not smart enough to know he sent me to you too. I was raised with a little bit of that spiritual, religious snobbery. My friends were very closely scrutinized by those who had watch over me. I was told that hanging out with Pentecostals was okay, as long as they're not the extreme Pentecostals. Baptists, Lutherans, Alliance folks, okay, they're okay, but don't get too many of those. I think they were disappointed when I married one, but. And then there were social gospel folks that you you needed to stay away from because they had compromised our version of the gospel. And then there were the cults and the false religions, and I I was to have nothing to do with them, and, and they might lure me to something other than the true faith. But at the bottom of the barrel were the pagans, the non-church-going, non-believing, sinning group that didn't love God like we love God. Stay clear of them. You can't go to their house. You can't go to their birthday parties. You can't just stay clear. I, I also knew for sure that because I was a Pentecostal, I was most certainly on the list of do not befriend lists of other people in my school. 
their, their parents, their Christian parents told them, listen, they're on the, they're on the fence. Don't, don't get too close to that kid. So I was raised something of a religious bigot, but I also experienced firsthand some religious bigotry. Imagine the surprise I got and the confusion that I had when I discovered one of my favorite titles of Jesus. He was a friend to sinners. Oh, I wrestled with that one. It was meant as an insult, a slur against Jesus' character, but it was part of his mission. In, in Matthew's gospel, speaking as one who had been described as scum, he, he tells of a discussion that Jesus had with the religious patriots. He says, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. And the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sin, sin, sinners. But wisdom has shown to be right. What is the result? What is the outcome? He says, I, there's no pleasing you, people. You're, you're just bigots. If, if it doesn't look like you, if it doesn't act like you, it's wrong. John the Baptist was a straight-laced guy. He was careful about what he ate. He never drank any alcohol at all, and, and he didn't go to parties, and you called him demon-possessed. But I come, and I, I hang out with the wrong crowd. I have been known to turn some water into wine. I... I go to parties and you call me a drunkard and a glutton. And what are you looking for? If it isn't looking like you, it's wrong. But that can't be right either, he says to them. Because no one is being helped by your practice of religion. You're not healing the sick. You're not, you're not setting captives free. You're not pouring courage into the discouraged. You're, you're just crushing people with rules and disabling them from discovering God because you don't see them as good enough to be part of what God is doing. So let's not fight about style and form. Let's come down to a conclusion of, of outcomes and results. From the moment Jesus says, come follow me and be my disciple, he starts to work a transformational work that occurs when you love and follow God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He starts with withdrawing, pulling out some of the bigotry, some of the misconceptions, some of the lies that we've lived out. He, he starts to train you not to be stopped by difficulty, not to be deterred by the word impossible, not to pay attention to mountainous obstacles that set themselves up between you and your crisis and the miraculous breakthrough that you need. He starts to relieve you of the burden of bigotry and injustice of judgmental bias. He wants to install in both you and me the love that God has for people and for the world that ignited his plan to give his one and only son to come and take the world's sin away so that they could connect and belong to a loving father that he could call them sons and daughters. Lukewarm followers don't get the job done. Passionate followers, totally committed to both the leader and the cause that he gave his life for, are the ones who make hope grow in the places they're planted, who find people in need, who speak his name and bring power, bring healing, bring life to the situation. I've been deeply moved this week as I've been watching the 
the pictures coming out of Turkey and out of Syria. I, I wish we had a better understanding, a better sense that help was getting through to Syria. But with embargoes and government problems and war conditions that aren't, that, that, that isn't possible. I, I talked about Ida. Ida, you were out with your kids, but we prayed for you. Just wave so people know who you are. Ida, just wave. This is Ida, okay? Three kids in Syria, okay? When you're praying, I want you to pray for her and for her three kids. I, I've, I've been watching all of that. When earthquake took place on Monday, we were told that the next 48 hours were, were crucial. With the cold weather that was there and that they would be experiencing and the magnitude of the quake, if you don't get to the people in this short window of 48 hours, there's no hope for survivors after that. But there are passionate people in those two nations. People who are frantically digging through rubble. Not, they're not sleeping. They're not, they're not living their best life. They're just working desperately to reach survivors. Listen, not, not listening to the grim predictions of, of experts, but, but doing all they can to reach the injured and the trapped, their, their fellow citizens. Listening for sounds of life rather than listening to criticism. That's the same picture Jesus wants you to see this morning. The same picture that Jesus demonstrates for us in these first few verses of chapter 2. His followers are going where people are and where people have need. And, and, and they're befriending them. They're reaching out to them. They're giving them a place to belong. They're caring for them and for their need. And, and people whose faith is steadfast in God can't be happy, can't be satisfied with status quo. They, they, they have to believe, they have to fight for more, for health, for healing, for breakthrough, for justice, for compassion, for liberty, for salvation. They have to have a cause so that hope can grow. Debbie, will you come to the keys? I, I can't live for a dead, useless religion. I, I know that there's more. I've experienced more. I've seen more. I long for more. And I cling to the promise that if you seek, with, seek me with all your heart, I will be found of you. I, I refuse to be anything less than passionate. I refuse to be less than radically committed to Christ and to his cause. I refuse. I refuse to ha believe that a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit is committed to prayer, is grounded in the word that is serving wherever there is need, that is giving and living generously, that is connecting with people as they are to the love of God as it is. I refuse to believe that they can't turn a story around. There's a young woman that I follow on Instagram and her page is called Raised to Stay. She, she's a minister of hope. She's very articulate and Quite often I will read her at the beginning of the morning and she says things in, in such an interesting way, such a provocative way, such a, a, a crucial way that it has me thinking throughout the day. Her page is called Raised to Stay and she's, she gives me something to, to think about. And the other day as I was preparing this, this message... She picked up on what I was thinking, although she is not Jesus. She just seemed to be in the same neighborhood as I was. 
And uh, she paints this picture that I love, a picture that I, I want us to think about our church being this. I want you to think of yourself as being someone who is friends in this place that are like this. She says this, I want friends who will lower me through, my, uh, through a roof to my healing, who will worship my chains to the ground when I'm in bondage, friends who run to Jesus on my behalf, who will call out, call me out of an early grave. I want upper room community who isn't afraid of a, of a little fire, who, who knows how to fan a flame and stir up a gift. I want intercessors who go to war without ceasing and worshipers who go to battle as warriors. I want a church who knows the word of God and wields it like a double-edged sword. For it is burning in their bellies, it's burning in their bones. I want an army who knows how to fight and a family who knows how to love. I want our church to be like that. I want our church to be like that. An army that knows how to fight, fight our enemy, Fight religious rules and regulations that strangle and crush hope, that fight injustice and fight for breakthrough like the four friends who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. But I also want a family who knows how to love people passionately. We often think that we want them dry cleaned and pressed and, and perfect when they arrive, but that's not how Jesus delivers them to the door of this house. He sends them sends us to tell them that he loves them no matter how big a mess they are sends us to tell them that they belong to him in in the hopes that they will believe and he will take care of how they behave as he transforms them just as he is transforming you and me i want you to stand this morning i have some very clear direction as to how we're going to pray i'm going to ask our prayer people to come and stand across the front really quickly right now as I'm speaking, please. I, I want to pray for people this morning that are paralyzed and laying on mats. You're hitting obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. You're being told that you're going down, that there is no hope. You won't succeed. You will lose everything. You'll be shamed and humiliated and that you will be so sorry that you ever believed for the impossible. I'm here today to declare with God nothing is impossible. I'm here today to declare that God can give you strategy that will confuse and befuddle your enemies. He can heal your disease. He can solve your insolvency. He can send your friends in battle. He can give you insight to the people who seem to be friendly but are robbing you blind. He's about to take you off the mat and send you strutting in the street in joy. I want you to come in just a moment. Prayer people, as you are praying, I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to inspire your declaration with faith. And don't be afraid to declare boldly the nature and the heart of God. I want you to speak the name of Jesus boldly. I want you to powerfully release the name that brings healing, that's full of life. I want you to speak Jesus over their, their lives. I especially feel to pray for work situations this morning. God knows the strategy that will take you from tragedy to victory. Don't stop and believe a lie that will give you anything less than his best. I want to pray over your life, over your business, over your work situation. I want us to pray for those who have been branded with prejudicial, pejorative titles. 
you, you, might have been, you might not have been called scum, although some of you may have been called scum, but more likely called loser, addict, liar, useless, not worth the skin you're printed on. I have good news for you this morning. I have researched it firsthand, and I can tell you that this is true. You are none of those things. You are, you are a sick person who had the doctor has been sent to the house, and he can make you well, and he can take you from where you were and he can transform you and make you something that nobody ever all things passed away everything brand new I want to pray over you this morning his name is Jesus and there is power in that name there is healing in that name and the life that springs out of that name will will change you from inside out old things passed away new things coming your way your your outlook your reputation your destiny will become brand new finally for those who don't know Jesus you've never encountered him or you've been estranged from him for a time it's time to come home the Father's been, been talking to you. The Father's been drawing you. The Father's been asking you to come. It's time for you to meet the hope of the word world. You come and tell the person that's praying for you that you need Jesus, and they'll help you discover a much-needed part of your life. And so as if you fall into one of those categories, I'm wanting you to come right now. Don't wait. Don't look around. Don't Just get out of your seat and come. You just come. People are